Welcome to episode three of HBR Talks The First 100, where we discuss the recent developments in the Biden administration and its relations to US politics at large. Last time, we covered the administration's response to extreme winter weather in southern states, attempts at restoring the Iran nuclear deal, and the likelihood of passing COVID-19 relief packages and immigration reform bills through a divided Congress. Today, we're going to start by discussing the House's passing of Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package. Then, we'll take a deeper look at the House and the polarization that Speaker Pelosi is facing there. After that, we'll discuss former President Trump's tease at another presidential run, a report that found the Saudi crown prince responsible for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, advances in vaccine rollout, and finally, we'll talk a bit about Ron Klain, Biden's incredibly decorated and uniquely influential chief of staff. On February 26, the House passed Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package. The vote count was 219 to 212 and took place on near-party lines. Similar to the large immigration bill that we discussed last week, the main point of contention with this bill was its scope. Republicans argue that the bill is too large, that it contains a lot of elements that have nothing to do with the pandemic at hand. To quote House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, each of the 592 pages of the bill, quote, includes a liberal pipe dream that predates the pandemic. One of these, quote, liberal pipe dreams that Republicans are referring to is the bill's provision to raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour by 2025. Democrats are trying to pass it using Senate rules that allow them to skirt opposition by lowering the amount of votes necessary to pass. But this could be proven to be trickier than Democrats would like, which is leading many to think that if the bill does end up passing in the Senate, it will likely be without this provision. In that case, the minimum wage would probably be raised to a more moderate $9.50 as opposed to the original $15. Crucial to understand here is that, though the vote in the House occurred along party lines, there's still a lot of intra-party dissent, especially within the Democratic ranks. For example, centrist Democrats like Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are against changing Senate rules to make advancing major legislation easier, and they want to exclude the minimum wage provision from the relief bill. Progressive Democrats, on the other hand, are pressuring Vice President Kamala Harris to ignore the ruling of the Senate's parliamentarian and allow the minimum wage provision to stay in the bill. I think it's really important to reflect on what this minimum wage provision of the bill means beyond economic policy. Politicians across the political spectrum are considering it symbolic of Biden's legislative potential. If it passes, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez believes that it will be a strong, emphatic start to the four-year term. If the provision fails, it could conversely foreshadow a weaker and more fragile beginning to Biden's ambitious plans. It will certainly be interesting to see how the bill holds up in the Senate and how much both the bill and Senate rules end up changing if it does. With the $1.9 trillion package heading to the Senate after a narrow victory in the House, President Biden said Saturday morning that he hopes a bill will, quote, receive quick action, saying that, quote, if we act now, decisively, quickly, boldly, we can finally get ahead of this virus and, quote, get our economy moving again. I think it's important to remember that even though this marks one of Biden's most tangible wins during his presidency thus far, the package passed by an incredibly tight margin. Again, 219 to 212, which, if anything, could foreshadow a very fine line that Pelosi has to walk if she wants to actualize some of the major projects that the Biden administration is hoping to push forward during his term. 
So what's the next step for the package now that it's been passed in the House? The immediate challenge is how the package is going to be received in the Senate. And we already know that a good number of Republicans are expressing disapproval over the huge amount of funds it calls for. Not to mention that the Senate is at a precise 50-50 split, which means that most likely every single Democratic senator is going to have to vote yes on this package if they want to see it through. I think a big issue here is compromise, especially when it comes to the $15 minimum wage proposal that's been the talk of the town both in and outside of Washington. We're certainly seeing compromise happen to some extent, as the $15 minimum wage provision was left out of the package that was passed on Saturday morning, with Senator Bernie Sanders being one of, if not the most, outspoken proponent of it. You're certainly right that compromise is a big issue for this package, and there are plenty of roadblocks in the way for bipartisan collaboration. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy of California is one of many Republicans who are expressing serious doubts about both the efficacy and partisan spirit of the package. He said, quote, To my colleagues who say this bill is bold, I say it's bloated. To those who say it's urgent, I say it's unfocused. To those who say it's popular, I say it is entirely partisan. Despite Republican concerns such as McCarthy's, it seems as though Democratic leaders, particularly Pelosi, can no longer worry about the Republican Party alone. ABC News recently reported that, quote, Democrats were trying to figure out how to assuage progressives who lost their top priority in a jarring Senate setback on Thursday. So rather than focusing singularly on the criticisms of the right, Democratic leaders are also going to have to prepare for backlash from the far left, especially as certain provisions on the progressive agenda are dropped for the sake of bipartisan collaboration. Trump returned to the public eye during the recent Conservative Political Action Conference in Orlando, Florida, marking his first public address since the conclusion of his presidency. The former president hinted at a potential presidential run in 2024, stating in a speech that he, quote, may even decide to beat them for a third time. So how was Trump received at the conference and what does this suggest about his influence on the current Republican Party? Well, David Siders of Politico aptly noted that the overwhelming support for Trump at the nation's most influential conservative conference indicates the totality of the Republican base's embrace, as well as the peril facing less Trumpian elements of the party. During his speech, Trump was intentional about identifying his, quote, enemies, which included Republican lawmakers such as Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, and Mitt Romney of Utah. I think it's also telling that, according to Stephen Collinson of CNN, Trump received the, quote, biggest cheer when he refreshed the lie that he won in November, then embarked on multiple flagrantly false claims of fraud, end quote, which suggests that for a Republican to ally with Trump, they're going to need to actively adopt the viewpoint that the election was stolen. And it's not quite clear how many Republicans are going to be willing to do that. Prominent senators who previously expressed opinions of election fraud include Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. To that end, what are some of the main predictions surrounding Trump and the future of the Republican Party in 2021 and beyond? It's still contested exactly how Trump's reemergence into the political scene is going to affect the Republican Party, although some experts are hypothesizing a radical fissure within the GOP and a potential failure of the party to hold together. It's clear that there are a good amount of Republicans who are actively trying to distance themselves from the former president's incendiary politics and stance on the Capitol Hill riots. 
That's definitely correct. For example, back in January, former Republican Congressman Ryan Costello spoke with NPR about his opinion on the future of the party. When interviewer Scott Simon asked the question, quote, has the party of Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and Ed Brooke become the party of the Proud Boys and Confederate flags and racism, Costello responded with, quote, I certainly don't want that. And he further argued that the, quote, predominantly overwhelming majority of Republicans don't believe in that sort of hateful ideology. I think the even bigger question is who is going to attract the greater number of undecided Republicans, Trump or a more moderate Republican wing, and how that split is going to affect the 2024 presidential race. Then, when you add the possibility of somebody like Ted Cruz running for office, it further complicates the radicalized sector of the Republican Party and Trump's prospects for a 2024 victory. Moving to global politics, in a report released on February 26, the U.S. intelligence community confirmed that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Saudi officials reject these claims uncategorically, calling the report, quote, negative, false, and unacceptable, and adding that, quote, the report contained inaccurate information and conclusions. To that end, will these findings be swept under the rug, or do you think that the Biden administration will seek to punish the Saudi government for these crimes? Well, on the campaign trail, Biden was critical of Saudi Arabia's human rights record, as well as their intervention in the Yemeni civil war. He specifically referred to Saudi Arabia as a, quote, pariah. This was in line with Press Secretary Jen Psaki's statement prior to the Khashoggi report's release that the U.S. would be recalibrating relations with Saudi Arabia. I think the release of the new Khashoggi report is just going to catalyze this process. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken stated on Friday that the U.S. is imposing visa restrictions on Saudi officials, especially those believed to have been associated with the Khashoggi killing. Biden himself said in an interview with Univision that, quote, the rules are changing and that Saudi Arabia, quote, will be held responsible for human rights abuses. So what do you think Biden meant when he said, quote, the rules are changing? And how does Biden's present attitude regarding Saudi Arabia stack up to past administrations? The U.S. has recently had solid ties with Saudi Arabia. In 2017, Trump praised the nation for being a regional leader and for spending billions of dollars on U.S. weapons. Both Trump and Obama militarily assisted the Saudis in their Yemeni civil war effort. So overall, aside from occasional verbal condemnations, the U.S. hasn't been too harsh on Saudi Arabia. Interesting. And do you think this current approach will change? Maybe, maybe not. Politico recently published an article explaining that Biden has been deprioritizing efforts in the Middle East, almost to the extent where it seems like he is avoiding the region. In the words of one of Biden's national security advisors, quote, the Middle East is not in the top three regions that Biden sees as a priority. And in the words of another cabinet member, Biden is, quote, being extremely purposeful not to get dragged into the Middle East. However, while this may be true, it is likely that Biden will still try to stop the Saudi-led war in Yemen and attempt to broker some sort of diplomatic agreement instead. About whether or not he truly breaks precedent and becomes much harsher on Saudi Arabia for their war crimes, though, your guess is as good as mine. In lighter news, Johnson & Johnson had their coronavirus vaccine approved on February 27th. This is the first one-dose vaccine, and it's expected to ward off many of the new variants appearing across the globe. The company has agreed to provide 37 million doses to the U.S. government by the end of March and a total of 100 million doses by June. 
According to the New York Times, combining these new vaccines with the ones made by Pfizer and Moderna, there should be enough doses to cover every American adult who wants to be vaccinated. A big concern for the administration is the distribution of these vaccines. The concern is so large that the Biden administration, according to a February 16th article from Politico, is setting aside harsh criticisms of Silicon Valley and seeking their help in vaccine rollout. In the words of White House spokesperson Kevin Munoz, we are consulting with many companies, including Amazon, about specific ways they can help execute the president's national strategy against COVID. But vaccine distribution may not be the biggest concern in the fight against COVID-19. According to a February report published by the CDC, around only half of adults under the age of 65 said they were, quote, absolutely certain or, quote, very likely to get the vaccine. In order for the nation to reach herd immunity, it is very possible that the Biden administration will have to pursue more than logistical efforts regarding vaccine rollout. A moral and scientific appeal to Americans may also have to be at the forefront of the campaign against the coronavirus. Returning to President Biden's administration, there's been a lot of discussion surrounding Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain. In comparison to previous chiefs of staffs, Klain seems to be exercising an increased degree of influence over both the administration and the president himself. A recent article published by CNN even went as far to describe Klain as, quote, the building's most central figure aside from the president himself. And it's fair to say that Klain had deep connections to Biden well before his presidential campaign, correct? That's correct. He served as a chief of staff to the vice president for two vice presidents, first Al Gore from 1995 to 1999, and then Joe Biden from 2009 to 2011. During the Obama administration, Klain served as the White House Ebola Response Coordinator from 2014 to 2015. Well, recently, Klain has been facing ongoing criticism for pushing for the confirmation of Neera Tandon to serve as a director of the Office of Management and Budget. Moderate Republicans, including Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, are going to be crucial for a successful Tandon confirmation. Murkowski and Tandon actually met earlier today, but the Republican senator said that she is still undecided on which way she will vote, citing the need for personal, quote, assessment and some, quote, more follow-up questions. Some of the criticisms toward Klein include a failure to play it safe, especially considering the completely even Democrat and Republican split in the Senate. Others are arguing that he is the sort of strong influence the Biden administration needs during the navigation of the pandemic and future obstacles well beyond. In other news, there has been an influx of unaccompanied child migrants crossing the U.S. border. The Biden administration is scrambling to expand housing for these children. It is possible that the sharp rise is due to the presence of Biden in the Oval Office, a U.S. leader who has traditionally been much more sympathetic to undocumented immigrants than his predecessor Donald Trump was. According to HHS officials, these children are being held as their right to seek humanitarian protections and asylum are being dutifully processed. Biden has currently confirmed 11 out of 23 of his cabinet members. Interesting to note is that Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri has voted to oppose each and every one of these cabinet picks so far. This is in line with our prior analysis that Hawley would pose one of the biggest threats to the ambitions of the Biden administration. So that's where we are now. Democrats are split over what should and shouldn't be inside of the relief package that heads to the Senate. Biden faces a tough dilemma in terms of policing Saudi Arabia. Biden's legislation is still likely to get choked up in a divided Congress. 
And in writer news, the fight against COVID-19 is finally starting to look up. This has certainly been a very eventful first 100 days thus far, with its many elements of good and bad. As far as what happens next though, we're just as eager as you are to find out. And with that, I'm Emmy. And I'm Fawaz. And this has been HPR's Talks the First 100. Until next time.